Hey everyone, this is Coach Mark Nolan, and welcome back for another episode of Don't I'll Kick Your Coverage and our company, thekickerzone.com. At Don't I'll Kick Your Coverage, we are the only true podcast dedicated to the high school athlete and their parents and guardians who may not have a full understanding of all the issues facing them today. And with the recent NCAA changes and my background of having trained thousands of high school athletes and yes, their parents the past 48 years in the college athletic scholarship hunt. You know, my entire focus doing these podcasts, and I might add coming out of retirement to do these, is my only focus. These podcasts are not designed for me to be an international podcast rock star or to drive ad dollars to it. It's to drive the NCAA out of business in its truest form of a cartel. And today, I add another C to the NCAA, and that is control. But before we start, we want to welcome one of our newest affiliate members, ClickFunnels.com. This is an amazing software application that has changed millions of lives. And nearly over 250,000 entrepreneurial businesses worldwide. And I count myself as a new affiliate member. And yes... I do, in fact, receive a commission if you sign up to use ClickFunnels. And by the way, no, this is not an ad. Now, as for today, we don't have any special guests, but over the next three to four weeks, we have several awesome speakers. So please keep tuning in. And yes, of course, liking these podcasts, sharing and commenting. It really does mean a lot to me. Today, with all this being the fall season, and with September 1st around the corner, recruiting is going to be heating up. So my goal is to share the main reason why I harp so much on trying to get rid of, or at least have some of the powers taken away from the NCAA, which I have called the National Cartel Athletic Association. But as I said today, the second letter, C word, is control. Since this is what they really like doing to the athletes, parents, the TV folks, and mainly those mafia-style sports bettors who enjoy making bets off of the players' backs, but no one seems to want to go after them. I wonder why, and so should you. And with that, I wanted to provide a backstory for all the listeners and parents and guardians of high school athletes on not just my journey in dealing with the NCAA, but all the high school students, athletes, along these 50 years I worked with, and some great stories that I hope you can relate to. Back in 1973, when I first saw how one-sided this the NCAA was, when I signed my national letter of intent as a young man, I didn't realize just how one-sided it was, and to this day, still is. And I'll address some potential changes coming into 2024 and 2025 recruiting cycle a bit later in this podcast. But for many of you who really don't know about the National Letter of Intent, it is an agreement that favors the collegiate athletic departments over high school athletes and their parents. It always has, and it probably always will, because they love the control. Heck, the NCAA even controls what revenue is split up each year and by the conferences and sports. And this is what I pulled off the NCAA website about them. 
the NCAA receives most of its annual revenue from two sources, television and marketing rights for the Division I's men's basketball championship and ticket sales for all championships. That money is distributed in more than a dozen ways, almost all of which directly support NCAA schools, conferences, and nearly half a million student athletes. They say about 60% of the NCAA's annual revenue, around $600 million, is annually distributed directly to Division I member schools and conferences, while more than $150 million in funds goes to Division I championships. Division II and Division III receive 4.37 and roughly 3.18 of all NCAA revenue, respectfully, which both divisions would divide to fund their championships and support their membership. The NCAA also funds several services and educational programs for student athletes. Yep. More control and member schools, as well as a number of scholarships, grants, and intern programs, more control. The board of governors, which is the NCAA's highest governing body, with representatives from all three divisions and public members overseas, which really means controls the association's finances, including distributions. These governors are kind of like the mob bosses in those nice families we heard about way back in the day. So the word you'll hear from me today in this podcast is really one word that fits the current NCAA model to a T, and that is control. Control over the member schools, control over the TV and social media space, control over the venues, control over the rules, control over the high school athletes, and even the National Federation of High School Sports. And obviously, control even members of Congress with their latest hire of its current new president, Charlie Baker, who, for those who may not know, is a former Massachusetts governor and no doubt brings his lobbying skills to D.C. to help the NCAA control the legislation that the NCAA once passed. So for anyone who doesn't think the NCAA is a cartel, which in its purest definition is an association of suppliers, the colleges, with the purpose of maintaining prices at a high level, the ticket sales, and restricting competition, again, control. Any cartel surely is envious of the NCAA's reign and control these past 117 years. But for the purposes of this podcast and the high school athletes and their parents I speak with daily, I wanted to provide some information over some of the misconceptions that are out there and to assist in you having a better and clearer way to think and then act as your child or children goes down their own journey to move from high school athlete to college athlete and to let some of the noise you're hearing, just let it go in one ear and out the other without a second thought. Of course, not this podcast. I'm also doing this because I just don't see some of the high school guidance counselors post covid doing what they can to dispel these issues. So I wanted to provide a real working knowledge for you. First of all, and foremost, a scholarship offer 
is not a guarantee. I can't tell you how many times daily on social media we see young athletes, and yes, even mom and dad who post about the offer little Johnny or Janie is getting from Big U, and then all of a sudden Uncle Ed and Aunt Jane and Grandpa and Grandma and the rest of the folks on all the social media's athletes' account chime in with just how excited they are. Well, what are they excited? For what? It's important to note that when a coach extends a verbal scholarship offer, it's non-binding. This means that the scholarship will be granted if certain requirements are met. And one of them is signing the national letter of intent. Any other offer is just that. An offer that shows you you are at best being a recruited athlete in that sport and position and guarantees the athlete a roster spot and only for that season. Now, if you don't sign the National Letter of Intent, you don't have an athletic scholarship. Now, recently, in D3, they came up with a celebratory signing day, but only after the student-athlete has been accepted. Preferred walk-ons and walk-ons don't sign anything. I'll go further into this towards the end of the podcast, but first, some basics for everyone. So what is an athletic scholarship? An athletic scholarship is the amount of financial aid given to a student athlete from a college athletic department to help offset the cost of tuition. It is awarded based on the student's athletic abilities, the athletic department's budget, and the type of sport and division level. Then the team's coach is tasked with deciding who to award scholarships to as well as how much money each student athlete receives. Yes, athletic scholarships can be guaranteed for four years, but it's not the norm. But of course, it sounds good for the social media crowds. The NCAA has allowed colleges to provide multi-year scholarships since around 2012. And additionally, in 2015, NCAA Division I colleges from the Power Five conferences, what we call the P5, and my alma mater, Notre Dame, agreed to implement a rule that prevented multi-year D1 scholarships from being canceled or not renewed for any athletic reason. So yes, there are athletic scholarships that are guaranteed for four years, but they are not the norm outside of powerhouse football programs. While the practice of extending multi-year athletic scholarships has been growing, it is largely dependent on whether specific programs and coaches are open to offering them. And this is another way college coaches can now use the transfer portal and NIL bribes. Oh, I'm sorry. I mean money to extend their control. Most athletic scholarships are only guaranteed for one year and are generally renewed annually. There are some exceptions to this such as having academic or conduct, conduct issues. So be sure to discuss scholarship offers in detail with each coach in order to get a good idea of what your situation may be. Scholarships can be taken away for various reasons, with the biggest being GPAs and, of course, a flat-out disregard of university and or team rules or a felony. And although they are rare, now with a transfer portal, college athletes may not care as much as in recent years. Here's a case in point. I had one former football player who thought he had a full ride to Auburn about 10 years ago, who was the number one ranked punter in his class that year. 
and he simply fell out of graces with the football staff. And I received a call from him while I was attending a national camp the following January of his freshman year, where with his voice quivering and shocked, this young man who had just lost his dad to cancer said, Coach Nolan, I was just told by Coach X that my services were no longer required. And he said to me, how can that be, Coach? I am on a full ride. What does that mean? Well, I sadly point out that, once again, the control by the colleges and their lawyers had this in the making for probably a few months. The coach who, by the way, did not recruit him and had replaced the former coach the next year that they did not see eye to eye with this young man. And they did not say once he could not stay on after his scholarship, they could only stay on as a videographer. And there was no way he was going to stay on. I knew the kid too well. And maybe mainly because of his ego and mainly because he was number one, he would not stay on. And you know what? Within two weeks, he was moved out of the athlete's dorm, his meal plan and other freebies taken away, and went back into the general student population. After his initial shock, when I got back home, we sat down and looked at his options. When his dad knew he was going to pass away, he set aside enough monies for this young man and his sister to get their college paid for. Well, I used to tell parents to have their plan B to be for backup in case a scholarship does not work out. We sat down and looked at his options and decided it best served him better to stay at the school and graduate, which he did. By the way, his younger sister then also went to Auburn, so both of them graduated. What many parents refuse to understand is that most scholarships are only partial. The chance of getting a full athletic scholarship depends on the program. NCAA Division I college sports are divided into two categories, headcount and equivalency sports. And again, the C word is control. In headcount sports, college coaches can only offer full athletic scholarships. So if a headcount sport has 85 scholarships and 125 players on its roster, it cannot divide the scholarships among all the athletes. Now, there are six sports that fall under this category, football and basketball for men, and basketball, gymnastics, volleyball, and tennis for women. The other sports are what are called equivalency sports. This means a coach can divide their scholarship allotment across their team. While receiving a full-ride scholarship is possible in equivalency sports, it is very unusual. At the Division II and the NAIA level, all sports are considered equivalency sports. So to break this down, if all NCAA sports were headcount sports, only about 33% of athletes would receive scholarships, meaning the percentage of college athletes on a full ride would be much lower than it currently is. Only about 57% of Division I athletes receive some form of financial aid, ranging from book scholarships to a full ride. In Division II, it is slightly higher at 63%. So if there is one tip I would offer, as I do every year, knowing the low odds of receiving a full-ride college athletic scholarship, I tell athletes and their parents is that athletes will have the best chance of having their college education funded 
by seeking a combination of athletic and academic scholarships plus financial aid. So yes, academics in this sense are important. And even in some cases where you're looking at an out of state to play your sport, if you have a high enough GPA, they might give you an in-state tuition over an out-of-state tuition. And this can be a huge type of scholarship in of itself. As another example, just this past year, one of the kickers I trained who had some GPA issues early on, hint the parents, the sophomore high school year is normally the year in my own data that GPAs take a hit. And I'm sure when you think about it, with your own child and what happens in their sophomore year, you'll probably agree. And for all those listening whose child I work with, it seems like a broken record about how are your grades, how are your grades, since I ask this all the time, which drives the athletes I train nuts. But you know what? In this case, this young man needed a 3.5 GPA to get in. In the one school we looked at trying to get him in, the school staffs had said, they cannot offer him an athletic scholarship this year. And the parents are hardworking folks who cannot afford the out-of-state tuition monies. But he worked his tail off to get that 3.5. And now he is not only getting the in-state tuition, but has a shot at starting. For all you listeners here, please keep this in mind. In my reference, this is how you want to look at this. And according, according to the 2021 College, Bowl, uh, College Board report, the average tuition and fees for an in-state student at a public four-year university was $10,740 for the 2021-2022 year. By comparison, the average tuition and fees for an out-of-state student at a public university was $27,000. $560, nearly three times the in-state sticker price or over $68,000 in savings over a four-year period. If that does not wake you up, I don't know what will. Now, to the next myth I hear is that every college provides athletic scholarships. Now, most Division I, II, and NAIA schools offer athletic scholarships but Division III schools and Ivy Leagues do not. These schools claim that offering an athletic scholarship will take away from the academic and social experience that college aims to provide. By not providing athletic money, they believe they are creating the true student-athletes, young people who can excel equally in both academics and athletes. But what's funny is that in most of these Ivies, this is where all college sports started at. As I wrote about in my number one best-selling book on Amazon College Athletic Scholarships, these schools are mostly highly selective and competitive colleges and universities. They have billions of dollars in endowment funds, meaning they can offer the best academic scholarships and financial aid in the U.S. for these high school athletes. The NCAA data shows that 80% of all Division III student-athletes receive some form of educational grant or assistant need-based uh, averages to about $17,000 a year. I'm sorry, total. 
as I stated earlier, it is certainly possible for a student athlete competing at the division three level to receive more money through academic funding and financial aid than what a partial division one athletic scholarship could have provided. So another reminder of the importance of the student athlete brand that Walter Byers came up with. So parents, now I know all of you believe that Jimmy or Janie is a power five athlete, but you're not the ones footing the bill. So find the best program that is a fit for your child. One parent had asked me if all college sports teams were fully funded. So to comply with Title IX requirements, the NCAA has limited the number of scholarships available in each sport. For example, a Division I men's basketball team has an upper limit of 13, while a Division I women's track and field team has an upper limit of 18. A sports team that is able to meet the NCAA's maximum scholarship amount is called a fully funded program. Fully funded programs are not as common as one may think. For instance, I had a young man ask me about men's swimming who was a, a, a diving champion. Just over half of Division I men's swimming and diving programs have the budget to offer the NCAA maximum of 9.9 .9 scholarships available to prospective student-athletes. The point being is that there are, there are not nearly enough athletic scholarships, as everyone thinks. And I recently wrote a letter to the cartel's headquarters asking them to bring back athletic scholarships to pre 1973 levels. For instance, in 1973, football scholarships were at 105. And over the years, the cartel has taken them down to the current 85 level. Again, another controlling factor that you want to have. Next, some people think scholarships are four-year guarantees. Well, coaches can package scholarships in two ways a multi-year contract, or a renewal, non-renewal contract. If a coach offers a prospective athlete a multi-year scholarship, the athlete will have a guaranteed scholarship for at least two years. In the event of a career-ending injury, a student athlete can keep their scholarship provided that they apply and the NCAA approves their application for medical retirement, which again has not always been the case with the NCAA. Most schools offer renewal, non-renewal scholarships, which are year-to-year -year contracts that are renewed for renewal and non-renewal at the end of the award period. It is not uncommon for coaches to lower or cut an athlete's athletic aid if they underperform, show a lack of commitment to the team, or if the coach feels that the money could provide more value elsewhere, as in my previous example with the Auburn punter. A student-athlete scholarship package depends on the school, the conference, and the sport. All Big Ten conference member institutions offer scholarships for student-athletes' entire enrollment, while schools like the University of Texas, San Antonio, only award athletic scholarships for a maximum period of one academic year. Some parents believe that athletic scholarships are non-negotiable. I have said this for many years and why I believe those in-home visits by coaching staffs are similar to a job interview, and not just for the athlete, but to see who the parents are 
and how they act. My mom, for instance, used to make spaghetti and meatballs when coaches came by, God rest her soul. Coaches would also be able to see the home and just how important an athletic scholarship meant from a dollar standpoint. What kind of house they lived in, what kind of cars they had, what kind of neighborhood that they were in. And again, why the current NIL and the collectives are ruining college sports, which I believe will lower GPA since college athletes will be spending more time getting more likes and followers on social media as opposed to attending class. On the other hand, this is where an NIL deal might be able to have an impact on the negotiation side. If an athlete feels like they should be receiving more athletic aid than the coach has offered, the athlete can ask about more money. And of course, the more stars they have and the more dollars they might be able to get, they can negotiate better. And like anything else, any student athlete can also negotiate their scholarship at any point during their college time. For instance, if they have a blowout year, ask for more. And with the advent of the transfer portal, one can use this as a way to get more money from the AD if and when additional funds are available. Now, the one downside is that a student athlete who may think they are more important than the other teammates might just rub the others the wrong way. And this has been played out recently in a few cases. Now, with that said, in everything I've spoken about, it comes down to really one thing, and that's the national letter of intent. Now, lawyers over the years have believed the national letter of intent is what can legally be defined as a contract of adhesion, which is basically a standard form contract prepared by one party, the NCAA, who administers the national letter of intent, to be signed by the party who is in a weaker position the high school athletes and their parents or guardians who adheres to the contract with little choice about the terms. So there's that word again, control. But hey, we got to sign it, right? All those fans on National Signing Day can't wait to welcome you home, which is kind of funny since your home is where you were born and have lived for many years. And no doubt, you just can't wait to get those pictures taken and that new crazy multi-billion dollar NIL valuation deal set up by your new legal team and brand managers. And it's a bit surprising that they don't want to help you out with your legal national letter of intent document. Hmm. I wonder why that is. As a parent myself, who's had the same type of hype with our son on national signing day and his national letter of intent, and the tens of thousands of high school kids and their parents. Yes, it is an exciting time. But one, as we say, enjoy your 15 minutes of fame, especially as a student athlete. It is a hard grind. With 5 a.m. workouts, team meetings, practice, more workouts, more team meetings with your position coaches, and now compliance meetings set up by those nice HR folks, then home, and away games, and afterwards, you are right back at it. Oh, and don't forget, you got to keep up with your social media tweets to keep your new parents happy. You know, the marketing brand managers and lawyers who are hounding you every day to stay on top of your valuation dollars. Just like the wash, rinse, repeat cycle that I doubt many high school kids even know about how to do, and then stick 
everything in a dryer, hoping that nothing comes out wrong. This is why the national letter of intent is similar to the wash and dry labels on clothes. Even in these days, it's written in five languages with the warnings all over them. But these warning labels will get ignored. And like most top high school players who will sign a national letter of intent without question, because they can trust the folks at the NCAA, right? After all, this is what high school athletes do on national signing days. Well, of course, unless you're a high school, a few short years ago, when the NCAA screwed tens of thousands of your former high school buddies by locking down those college athletic scholarships that had never been done prior to the five other global pandemics in the years of the NCAA. And then, of course, to make matters even worse, they gave out to the other kids who should have graduated college another full year of eligibility to play college sports and then telling all those current high school athletes in those COVID years, sorry, no athletic scholarships for you. Just like the soup Nazi on the TV show Seinfeld a few years ago, more control from beginning to end. See, you along with mom and dad don't read the fine print. And if you do, you don't understand these warning labels. As a 17-year-old, just, you just don't consult attorneys. You just sign on the dotted line, put on the school cap, and smile for the cameras. I have argued that the National Letter of Intent should either be abolished or at least rewritten with a lawyer present representing the student athlete and their parents in the negotiations, handling both parties' interest in making the contract a fair and balanced one. But you, but you want to know why they won't do it for the NCAA? Yep, you have it right. They want and demand to control every aspect from the time a student high, uh, student high school athlete fills out his or her NCAA eligibility center, which used to be called the initial eligibility clearinghouse and was run by the American college testing and now run by the NCAA totally in-house, which costs $90. Oh, and by the way, if one does not have their NCAA 10 digit number, you can't get recruited by colleges. See the control theme. The NCAA only wants to control the language. They demand it. And you know why? Because there is just way too much money on the line for the high school student athlete and their parents, especially when moms and dads now all of a sudden see the NIL monies that colleges through the collectives and directives, the other side of the cartel, are bringing in. It is no different. If there is a difference, is that the NCAA has a bunch of suits controlling the athletes and parents, and the cartels have users who are in need of that next fix. There are many times the NCAA uses its control, and even as far back as when I was a freshman in college, the NCAA would not allow scholarship athletes to have a full-time job and make any additional monies on the side. And no matter how broke you were, and now with the NIL in place, the NCAA once again wants to control this issue that has gotten out of place by seeking relief from one place who loves to control people even more. Yep, 
the federal government and those nice 535 members of Congress. So yes, my goal is to gain some parity for the high school athlete and their parents. It is an ambitious goal, but as they say, most things worth fighting for are, but make no mistake about it. The control the government and NCAA want is not in the best interest of you, the high school athlete, or the parent of a high school athlete. And the athletic scholarships, which is roughly about $20,000 a year and has to be re-signed each year by the student athlete, is just another example of more control. By the way, the college university doesn't have to re-sign the athlete and can merely state, your services are no longer required, as I stated previously. Here is how I see this from my point as a coach. I view this as a story of David versus Goliath in the Bible where the Philistines had come up to make war against Saul. And this one warrior came forth day by day to challenge into a single combat. As we know, only David ventured to respond and armed with a sling and pebbles overcame Goliath. The Philistines, the college members of the NCAA, in this case I am hoping for, will see their champion killed, the National Letter of Intent contract, lose heart, and then flee. Just as David took Goliath's sword when he left Saul, I am hoping that by getting rid of the National Letter of Intent in its current form and taking the NCAA's sword, the NLI, from this group of folks and its NCAA members, the high school athlete can gain a fair fight. But to really script this out, we need to almost make this a modern-day Luke Skywalker versus Darth Vader. With those of us trying to help the high school athletes and their parents defeat the villains of the NCAA, the Collegiate Commissioners Association, which has seen the National Letter of Intent for almost 60 years. Now, to understand this issue, it's helpful that everyone understands the background of the National Letter of Intent. Now, of course, the National Letter of Intent folks will tell you that technically, the National Letter of Intent is a voluntary program, but unless an athlete is a superstar, he or she does not have the market power valuation to dictate terms of enrollment, even in this new day and age of the names, images, and likeness, and social media. You are told sign on the dotted line or risk losing the scholarship offer control once again back in 1964 the national letter of intent was formed and from 1995 through 2006 it was administered by the southeastern conference i pulled this short history of the national letter of intent off its website from 1964 to 1973 the national letter of intent rules are very specific with very little flexibility provided to meet the needs of a particular sport. Student athletes failing to fulfill the obligations of a national letter of intent were charged with the loss of two seasons of eligibility in all sports and few appeals to the rules were ever considered. From the athlete's perspective, the national letter of intent is a bad deal today, even with these some of these new proposed changes that I will go into a bit later in this podcast. Hint, once again, the NCAA, the C stands for collegiate and not high school athletes. For instance, 
the national letter of intent is written in first person singular form. For instance, I understand that if I do not attend the institution named in this document for one full academic year, I may not represent the latter institution in intercollegiate athletic and athletics competition until I have completed one full academic year in residence at the latter institution, etc. What's even funnier is that the first person in the national letter of intent language seems odd because this document was crafted by and clearly represents the interest of athletic directors and coaches rather than the athletes who must abide by the national letter of intent's onerous terms, even if they later have misgivings or outright regret about the decision to sign it. Look, as a parent listening to this, I hope you'll agree that a contract is usually, I give you something, you give me something back in return. If there is not a mutual consideration, there cannot be a contract. In this case, the individual student athlete doesn't get anything, or if they do, it's clearly weighted for the college. The national letter of intent is really an example of, of when two opposing folks of an unequal bargaining powers, in this case, high school athlete and a major university come together to the table. The powerful side often takes advantage of the situation since it was them who was sliding the document over to be signed. It requires a one-way commitment from the player and not a mutual commitment from the school. There is no commitment to even admit the player to the school at that time. Now in 2007, the NCAA took over administration of the National Letter of Intent under the guise that the NCAA is more student athletic friendly. And this cartel, of course, would bring the National Letter of Intent into the 21st century. More control. Yep, you got it. One further proof, one further proof of the cartel in action and the student athletes supposed to care about, even at the college level, there have been some recent cases being discussed but mainly stem from an illness of a parent guardian and where the athlete wants to be closer to home. Say like Devontae Walker, even though he's already been at two other previous schools and having only played at one, the cartel denied him. And even went as far as changing the rules midstream on him. And also Jake Smith from ASU who wanted to transfer for his third time he had started at Texas in 2019 and then USC last season, and they denied him as well. But yes, the NCAA and its all-knowing wisdom continues to do things as they have in the past 117 years of existence. Heck, they even came up with something called the Sanity Code shortly after World War II back in 1948 and was due to the rife corruption back then. It didn't matter. There was, and still is to this day, corruption at many of the levels and in just about every one of college sports. Can you imagine what Walter Byers, who coined the phrase student-athlete, would be saying today? As I said in another podcast, he hated what the NCAA had become once he had stepped down, and I'm sure he wished he could have done more. Also, just for some of my listeners, 
The National Letter of Intent guarantees a player a grant in aid in athletic scholarship, but provides athletic departments with the ability to wiggle out of their commitment since the National Letter of Intent is subject to the athlete being admitted into the university. That's provision 19 of the National Letter of Intent states that players agree they are signing with the school, not the individual sports program, even if the actual recruiting often reflects the opposite. And as I said earlier, is one of those changes they are trying to look at in 24. And yes, as I have and others have said for years, it is always hoped that athletes factor the school into their decisions. But every dollar, or more like thousands of athletic departments invest to sign a high school player signals just the opposite. Especially now that the collectives, you know, the new mafia, are running the names, images, and likeness deals, and, co and colleges and administrators are turning a blind eye. It almost reminds me of the old days of prohibition in the 1920s and ending in the 1930s with the 18th Amendment legalizing the sale of alcohol. When people wanted more and more of something, albeit illegal, they did even more things to get their fix. And make no mistake about it, college sports is an $18 billion a year fix. And the speakeasies of the old days are now multi-billion dollar sports complexes of today's, feeding the customers what they want and at just about any and all costs. Some suggest schools are providing more releases today than in the past, especially after a coaching change occurs. And that is one of the proposed changes the committee is looking at in the year 2024. However, for players who want out of the National Letter of Intent, they remain at the mercy of the school and the new coach for now, or until the cartel wants to change what they want. And until then, they're not going to do anything else. In reality, one athlete will not change the system. We need dozens, if not hundreds of thousands of athletes, parents, and the media to talk about it. But the media won't. They're simply in it with the NCAA. Better yet, we need top college prospects to threaten not to sign the letter, at least not in its current form. So what would I do if I had the opportunity to negotiate on behalf of student athletes? Well, that is a topic of my next discussion and one I don't want to let out of the bag since this is something I have written to Congress about in my recent letter to the subcommittee for which I'm hoping to speak. But I'm doubtful since I don't have a DC lobbyist who I can spend a few million dollars with to see the people in DC, you know, the, the folks in DC. Yep, the District of Controllers. Finally, as I have mentioned earlier, the National Letter of Intent program is undergoing multiple changes beginning with the class of 2024. What they're saying is some of the high school prospects who signed the NI, the National Letter of Intent, at the end of each recruiting cycle as a means of officially joining whichever athletes personally choose and into which they are accepted. Typically, there are penalties for breaking the National Letter of Intent without being granted a complete release from the institution. However, the Collegiate Commissioners Association, which again has, has overseen the National Letter of Intent for almost 60 years, is implementing several adjustments that will go into effect next year in recruiting period. The changes supposedly include the following. 
no national letter of intent penalty if the signee requests their release as a result of a head coaching change. No letter of intent penalty if the signee completes at least one academic semester or quarter at the institution of their choice. Additionally, four-year transfers will be able to sign a national letter of intent after entering the transfer portal. Now, this is not a requirement to transfer. Signing a national letter of intent would trigger a recruiting ban, meaning other schools would not be allowed to make contact once the player has signed with an institution. A prospect incurs an, an, a national letter of intent penalty if they request their release beyond the circumstances listed from these things and that the release is not granted by the institution with which they have signed. In that event, the athlete will have to sit out one year of completion and must complete one year of residency at their next institution. So I gave you a lot to think about. And I know in closing, I have given you, it's almost like drinking from a fire hose and a lot to grasp. And I hope all of you will take this in and look at your own child's situation and your plan B on the school choices that you have along with your children you are making to pursue these schools. If anyone has any questions, please feel reach out to me at area code 678-200-7540 or at mnolan at thekickerzone.com. Okay? So once again, thanks for listening to our Donut Kicker coverage. And please share this podcast with just one of your friends and give us those five-star likes ratings on your podcast platforms that you are listening to. Everyone, this is Coach Mark Nolan signing off. And remember, don't out kick your coverage. Take care.